This is a vainglorious ambition of the period. Mark you, in proportion as the modern theology is preached, the vice of this generation increases. To a great degree, I attribute the looseness of the age to the laxity of the doctrine preached by its teachers. From the pulpit they have taught the people that sin is a trifle. From the pulpit these traitors to God and to his Christ have taught the people that there is no hell to be feared. A little, little hell perhaps there may be, but just punishment for sin is made nothing of. The precious atoning sacrifice of Christ has been derided and misrepresented by those who were pledged to preach it. They have given the people the name of the gospel, but the gospel itself has evaporated in their hands. From hundreds of pulpits the gospel is as clean gone as the dodo from its old haunts, and still the preachers take the position and name of Christ's ministers. Well, and what comes of it? Why, their congregations grow thinner and thinner, and so it must be. Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But if you go in your own way, with your own net, you will make nothing of it, and the Lord promises you no help in it. The Lord's directions make himself our leader and example. It is, Follow me, follow me. Preach my gospel. Preach what I preached. Teach what I taught and keep to that. With that blessed servility, which becomes one whose ambition it is to be a copyist and never to be an original. Copy Christ even in jots and tittles. Do this and he will make you fishers of men. But if you do not do this, you shall fish in vain. I close this head of my discourse by saying that we shall not be fishers of men unless we follow Christ in one other respect. And that is, by endeavoring in all points to imitate his holiness. Holiness is the most real power that can be possessed by men or women. We may preach orthodoxy, but we must also live orthodoxy. God forbid that we should preach anything else, but it will be all in vain unless there is a life at the back of the testimony. An unholy preacher may even render truth contemptible. In proportion as any of us draw back from a living in zealous sanctification, we shall draw back from the place of power. Our power lies in this word, follow me. Be Jesus-like. In all things endeavor to think and speak and act as Jesus did, and he will make you fishers of men. This will require self-denial. We must daily take up the cross. This may require willingness to give up our reputation, readiness to be thought fools, idiots, and the like, as men are apt to call those who are keeping close to their master. There must be the cheerful resigning of everything that looks like honor and personal glory, in order that we may be holy Christs and glorify his name. We must live his life and be ready to die his death if need be. O oh, brothers, sisters, if we do this and follow Jesus, putting our feet into the footprints of his pierced feet, he will make us fishers of men. 
if it should so please him that we should even die without having gathered many souls to the cross, we shall speak from our graves. In some way or other, the Lord will make a holy life to be an influential life. It is not possible that a life which can be described as a following of Christ should be unsuccessful one in the sight of the Most High. Follow me, and there is an I will such as God can never draw back from. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Thus much on the first point. There is something for us to do. We are graciously called to follow Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead us to do it. 2. But secondly and briefly, there is something for the Lord to do. When his dear servants are following him, he says, I will make you fishers of men, and be it never forgotten that it is he that makes us follow him, so that if the following of him be the step to being made a fisher of men, yet this he gives us. Tis all of his spirit. I have talked about catching his spirit in abiding in him, in obeying him, in hearkening to him, in copying him. But none of these things are we capable of apart from his working them all in us. From me is thy fruit found, is a text which we must not for a moment forget. So then, if we do follow him, it is he that makes us follow him, and so he makes us fishers of men. But further, if we follow Christ, he will make us fishers of men by all our experience. I am sure that the man who is really consecrated to bless other will be helped in this by all that he feels, especially by his afflictions. I often feel very grateful to God that I have undergone fearful depression of spirits. I know the borders of despair in the horrible brink of that gulf of darkness into which my feet have almost gone. But hundreds of times I have been able to give a helpful grip to brethren and sisters who have come into that same condition, which grip I could never have given if I had not known their deep despondency. So I believe that the darkest and most dreadful experience of a child of God will help him to be a fisher of men if he will but follow Christ. Keep close to your Lord and he will make every step a blessing to you. If God in providence should make you rich, he will fit you to speak to those ignorant and wicked rich who so much abound in the city and so often are the cause of its worst sin. And if the Lord is pleased to let you be poor, you can go down and talk to those wicked and ignorant poor people who so often are the cause of sin in the city and so greatly need the gospel. The winds of providence will waft you where you can fish for men. The wheels of providence are full of eyes, and all those eyes will look this way to help us to be winners of souls. You will often be surprised to find how God has been in a house that you visit before you get there. His hand has been at work in its chambers. When you wish to speak to some particular individual, God's providence has been dealing with that individual to make him ready for just that word which you could say, but which nobody else 
but you could say, Oh, be you following Christ, and you will find that he will, by every experience through which you are passing, make you fishers of men. Further than that, if you will follow him, he will make you fishers of men, by distinct reproofs in your heart. There are many reproofs from God's Spirit, which are not noticed by Christians when they are in a callous condition. But when the heart is right with God, in living in communion with God, we feel a sacred sensitiveness, so that we do not need the Lord to shout, but his faintest whisper is heard. Nay, he need not even whisper, he will guide us with his eye. Oh, how many mulish Christians there are, who must be held in with bit and bridle, and receive a cut of the whip every now and then. But the Christian who follows his Lord shall be tenderly guided. I do not say that the Spirit of God will say to you, Go near and join thyself to this chariot, or that you will hear a word in your ear. But yet in your soul, as distinctly as the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot, you will hear the Lord's will. As soon as you see an individual, the thought shall cross your mind. Go and speak to that person. Every opportunity of usefulness shall be a call to you. If you are ready, the door shall open before you, and you shall hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. If you have the grace to run in the right way, you shall never be long without an intimation as to what the right way is. That right way shall lead you to river or sea where you can cast your net and be a fisher of men. Then too, I believe that the Lord meant by this that he would give his followers the Holy Ghost. They were to follow him, and then when they had seen him ascend into the holy place of the Most High, they were to tarry at Jerusalem for a little while, and the Spirit would come upon them and clothe them with a mysterious power. This word was spoken to Peter and Andrew, and you know how it was fulfilled to Peter. What a host of fish he brought to land the first time he cast the net in the power of the Holy Ghost. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Brethren, we have no conception of what God could do by this company of believers gathered in the tabernacle tonight. If now we were to be filled with the Holy Ghost, there are enough of us to evangelize London. There are enough here to be the means of the salvation of the world. God saved not by many, nor by few, but let us seek to be made a benediction to our fellow creatures, and if we seek it, let us hear this directing voice, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You men and women that sit before me, you are by the shore of a great sea of human life, swarming with the souls of men. You live in the midst of millions, but if you will follow Jesus and be faithful to him and true to him and do what he bids you, he will make you fishers of men. Do not say, Who shall save the city? The weakest shall be strong enough. Gideon's barley cake shall smite the tent and make it lie along the ground. 
Samson with the jawbone taken up from the earth where it was lying, bleached in the sun, shall smite the Philistines. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Let your responsibilities drive you closer to your master. Let your horror of prevailing sin make you look into his dear face, who long ago wept over Jerusalem and now weeps over London. Clasp him and never let go your hold. By the strong and mighty impulses of the divine life within you, quickened and brought to maturity by the Spirit of God, learn this lesson from your Lord's own mouth. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You are not fit for it, but he will make you fit. You cannot do it of yourself, but he will make you do it. You do not know how to spread nets and draw scrolls of fish to shore, but he will teach you. Only follow him, and he will make you fishers of men. I wish that I could somehow say this as with a voice of thunder, that the whole church of God might hear it. I wish I could write it in stars, athwart the sky. Jesus saith, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. If you forget the precept, the promise shall never be yours. If you follow some other track or imitate some other leader, you shall fish in vain. God grant us to believe fully that Jesus can do great things in us and then do great things by us for the good of our fellows. 3. The last point you might work out in full for yourselves in your private meditations with much profit. We have here a figure full of instruction. I will give you but two or three thoughts which you can use. I will make you fishers of men. You have been fishers of fish if you follow me. I will make you fishers of men. A fisher is a person who is very dependent and needs to be trustful. He cannot see the fish. One who fishes in the sea must go and cast in the net, as it were, at a peradventure. Fishing is an act of faith. I have often seen in the Mediterranean men go with their boats and enclose acres of sea with vast nets, and yet when they have drawn the net to shore they have not had as much result as I could put in my hand. A few wretched silvery nothings have made up the whole take. Yet they have gone again and cast the great net several times a day, hopefully expecting something to come of it. Nobody is so dependent upon God as the minister of God. Oh, this fishing from the tabernacle pulpit! What a work of faith! I cannot tell that a soul will be brought to God by it. I cannot judge whether my sermon will be suitable to the persons who are here except that I do believe that God will guide me in the casting of the net. I expect Him to work salvation and I depend upon Him for it. I love this complete dependence and if I could be offered a certain amount of preaching power which should be entirely at my own disposal and by which I could save sinners I would beg the Lord not to let me have it, for it is far more delightful to be entirely dependent upon Him at all times. It is good to be a fool when Christ is made unto you wisdom. It is a blessed thing to be weak 
if Christ becomes more fully your strength. Go to work, you who would be fishers of men, and yet feel your insufficiency. You that have no strength, attempt this divine work. Your master's strength will be seen when your own has all gone. A fisherman is a dependent person. He must look up for success every time he puts the net down. But still, he is a trustful person, and therefore he casts in the net joyfully. A fisherman who gets his living by it is a diligent and persevering man. The fishers are up at dawn. At daybreak, our fishermen off the dogger bank are fishing, and they continue fishing till late in the afternoon. As long as hands can work, men will fish. May the Lord Jesus make us hard-working, persevering, unwearied fishers of men. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether shall prosper either this or that. The fisherman in his own craft is intelligent and watchful. It looks very easy, I dare say, to be a fisherman, but you would find that it was no child's play if you were to take a real part in it. There is an art in it, from the mending of the net right on to the pulling it to shore. How diligent the fisherman is to prevent the fish leaping out of the net. I heard a great noise one night in the sea, as if some huge drum were being beaten by a giant, and I looked out and I saw that the fishermen of Mentone were beating the water to drive the fish into the net, or to keep them from leaping out when they had once encompassed them with it. Ah, yes, and you and I will often have to be watching the corners of the gospel net, lest sinners who are almost caught should make their escape. They are very crafty, these fish, and they use this craftiness in endeavoring to avoid salvation. We shall have to be always at our business and to exercise all our wits, and more than our own wits, if we are to be successful fishers of men. A fisherman is a very laborious person. It is not at all an easy calling. He does not sit in an armchair and catch fish. He has to go out in rough waters. If he that regardeth the clouds will not sow, I am sure that he that regardeth the clouds will never fish. If we never do any work for Christ except when we feel up to the mark, we shall not do much. If we feel that we will not pray because we cannot pray, we shall never pray. And if we say, I will not preach today because I do not feel that I could preach, we shall never preach any preaching that is worth the preaching. We must be always at it until we wear ourselves out, throwing our whole soul into the work in all weathers for Christ's sake. The fisherman is a daring man. He tempts the boisterous sea. A little brine in his face does not hurt him. He has been wet through a thousand times. It is nothing to him. He never expected when he became a deep-sea fisherman that he was going to sleep in the lap of ease. So the true minister of Christ who fishes for souls will never mind a little risk. He will be bound to do or say many a thing that is very unpopular 
and some Christian people may even judge his utterances to be too severe, he must do and say that which is for the good of souls. It is not his to entertain a question as to what others will think of his doctrine or of him, but in the name of the Almighty God he must feel if the sea roar in the fullness thereof, still at my master's command I will let down the net. Now in the last place, a man whom Christ makes a fisher of men is successful. But, says one, I have always heard that Christ's ministers are to be faithful, but that they cannot be sure of being successful. Yes, I have heard that saying, in one way I know it is true, but another way I have many doubts about it. He that is faithful is, in God's way and in God's judgment, successful, more or less. For instance, here is a brother who says that he is faithful. Of course, I must believe him, yet I never heard of a sinner being saved under him. Indeed, I should think that the safest place for a person to be in if he did not want to be saved would be under this gentleman's ministry, because he does not preach anything that is likely to arouse, impress, or convince anybody. This brother is faithful, so he says. Well, if any person in the world says to you, I am a fisherman, but I have never caught anything, you would wonder how he could be called a fisherman. A farmer who never grew any wheat or any other crop, is he a farmer? When Jesus Christ says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, he means that you shall really catch men, that you really shall save some. For he that never did get any fish is not a fisherman. He that never saved a sinner after years of work is not a minister of Christ. If the result of his life work is nil, he made a mistake when he undertook it. Go thou with the fire of God in thy hand and fling it among the stubble, and the stubble will burn. Be thou sure of that. Go thou and scatter the good seed. It may not all fall in fruitful places, but some of it will. Be thou sure of that. Do but shine, and some eye or other will be lightened thereby. Thou must, thou shalt succeed. But remember this is the Lord's word. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Keep close to Jesus, and do as Jesus did, in his spirit, and he will make you fishers of men. Perhaps I speak to an attentive hearer who is not converted at all. Friend, I have the same thing to say to you. You also may follow Christ, and then he can use you, even you. I do not know but that he has brought you to this place that you may be saved, and that in after years he may make you speak for his name and glory. Remember how he called Saul of Tarsus, and made him the apostle of the Gentiles. Reclaimed poachers make the best gamekeepers, and saved sinners make the ablest preachers. Oh, that you would run away from your old master tonight without giving him a minute's notice, for if you give him any notice, he will hold you. Hasten to Jesus and say, Here is a poor runaway slave, my Lord, I bear the fetters still upon my wrists. 
Wilt thou set me free and make me thine own? Remember, it is written, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Never runaway slave came to Christ in the middle of the night without his taking him in, and he never gave one up to his old master. If Jesus make you free, you shall be free indeed. Flee away to Jesus, then on a sudden. May his good spirit help you, and he will by and by make you a winner of others to his praise. God bless you. Amen. Chapter 15, page 106, Encouragement to Soul Winners James is preeminently practical. If he were indeed the James who was called the just, I can understand how he earned the title, for that distinguishing trait in his character shows itself in his epistle. And if he were the Lord's brother, he did well to show so close a resemblance to his great relative and master, who commenced his ministry with the practical sermon on the mount. We ought to be very grateful that, in the Holy Scripture, we have food for all classes of believers, and employment for all the faculties of the saints. It was meet that the contemplative should be furnished with abundant subjects for thought. Paul has supplied them. He has given to us sound doctrine, arranged in a symmetry of exact order. He has given us deep thoughts and profound teachings. He has opened up the deep things of God. No man who is inclined to reflection and thoughtfulness will be without food so long as the epistles of Paul are still in existence, for he feeds the soul with sacred manna. For those whose predominating affections and imagination incline them to more mystic themes, John has written sentences aglow with devotion and blazing with love. We have his simple but sublime epistles, epistles which, when you glance at them, seem in their wording to be fit for children, but when examined, their sense is seen to be so sublime to be fully grasped by the most advanced of men. You have from that same eagle-eyed and eagle-winged apostle the wondrous visions of the revelation where awe, devotion, and imagination may enlarge their flight and find scope for the fullest exercise. There will always be, however, a class of persons who are more practical than contemplative, more active than imaginative, and it was wise that there should be a James whose main point should be to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance and help them to persevere in the practical graces of the Holy Spirit. The text before me is perhaps the most practical utterance of the whole epistle. The whole epistle burns, but this ascends in flames to heaven. It is the culmination as it is the conclusion of the letter. There is not a word to spare in it. It is like a naked sword stripped of its jeweled scabbard and presented to us with nothing to note but its keen edge. I wish I could preach after the fashion of the text, and if I cannot, I will at least pray that you may act after the fashion of it. Downright living for the Lord Jesus is sadly wanted in many quarters. 
we have enough of Christian garnishing, but solid everyday actual work for God is what we need. If our lives, however, unornamented they may be by leaves of literary or polite attainments, shall nevertheless bring forth fruit unto God in the form of souls converted by our efforts. It will be well. They will then stand forth before the Lord with the beauty of the olive tree, which consists in its fruitfulness. I call your attention very earnestly to three matters. First, here is a special case dealt with. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, while still speaking of that special case, the apostle declares a general fact. He which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. When I have spoken of those two points, I mean thirdly to make a particular application of the text, not at all intended by the apostle, but I believe abundantly justified in application of the text to increased effort for the conversion of children. 1. First then, here is a special case dealt with. Read the verse and you will see that it must relate to a backslider from the visible church of God. The words, if any of you, must refer to a professed Christian. The erring one had been named by the name of Jesus and for a while had followed the truth. But in an evil hour he had been betrayed into doctrinal error and had erred from the truth. It was not merely that he fell into a mistake upon some lesser matter which might be compared to the fringe of the gospel, but he erred in some vital doctrine. He departed from the faith in its fundamentals. There are some truths which must be believed. They are essential to salvation. And if not heartily accepted, the soul will be ruined. This man had been professedly orthodox, but he turned aside from the truth on an essential point. Now in those days the saints did not say, as the sham saints do now, we must be largely charitable and leave this brother to his own opinion. He sees truth from a different standpoint and has a rather different way of putting it. But his opinions are as good as our own and we must not say that he is in error. That is at present the fashionable way of trifling with divine truth and making things pleasant all around. Thus the gospel is debased and another gospel propagated. I should like to ask modern board churchmen whether there is any doctrine of any sort for which it would be worth a man's while to burn or to lie in prison. I do not believe they could give me an answer, for if their latitudinarianism be correct, the martyrs were fools of the first magnitude. From what I see of their writings and their teachings, it appears to me that the modern thinkers treat the whole compass of revealed truth with entire indifference, and though perhaps they may feel sorry that wilder spirits should go too far in free thinking, and though they had rather they would be more moderate, yet upon the whole, so large as their liberality, that they are not sure enough of anything 
to be able to condemn the reverse of it as a deadly error. To them, black and white are terms which may be applied to the same color as you view it from different standpoints. Yea and nay are equally true in their esteem. Their theology shifts like the Goodwin sands, and they regard all firmness as so much bigotry. Errors and truths are equally comprehensible within the circle of their charity. It was not in this way that the apostles regarded error. They did not prescribe large-hearted charity towards falsehood or hold up the errorist as a man of deep thought whose views were refreshingly original. Far less did they utter some wicked nonsense about the probability of their living more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. They did not believe in justification by doubting, as our neologians do. They set about the conversion of the erring brother. They treated him as a person who needed conversion, and viewed him as a man who, if he were not converted, would suffer the death of his soul, and be covered with the multitude of sins. They were not such easy-going people as our cultured friends of the school of modern thought, who have learned at last that the deity of Christ may be denied, the work of the Holy Spirit ignored, the inspiration of the scriptures rejected, and the atonement disbelieved, and regeneration dispensed with. And yet the man who does all this may be as good a Christian as the most devout believer. O God, deliver us from this deceitful infidelity, which, while it does damage to the erring man, and often prevents his being reclaimed, does yet more mischief to our own hearts by teaching us that truth is unimportant and falsehood a trifle, and so destroys our allegiance to the God of truth and makes us traitors instead of loyal subjects to the King of Kings. It appears from our text that this man, having erred from the truth, followed the natural logical consequence of doctrinal error, and he erreth in his life as well. For the twentieth verse, which must of course be read in connection with the nineteenth, speaks of him as a sinner converted from the error of his way. His way went wrong after his thought had gone wrong. You cannot deviate from truth without ere long in some measure at any rate deviating from practical righteousness. This man had erred from right acting because he had erred from right believing. Suppose a man shall imbibe a doctrine which leads him to think little of Christ. He will soon have little faith in him and become little obedient to him and so will wander into self-righteousness or licentiousness. Let him think lightly of the punishment of sin. It is natural that he will commit sin with less compunction and burst through all restraints. Let him deny the need of the atonement and the same result will follow if he acts out his belief. Every error has its own outgrowth as all decay has its appropriate fungus. It is in vain for us to imagine that holiness will be as readily produced from erroneous as from truthful doctrine. 
Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? The facts of history prove the contrary. When truth is dominant, morality and holiness are abundant. But when error comes to the front, godly living retreats in shame. The point aimed at with regard to the sinner in thought and deed was his conversion, the turning of him round in bringing him to right thinking and to right acting. Alas, I fear many professed Christians do not look upon backsliders in this light, neither do they regard them as hopeful subjects for conversion. I have known a person who has erred, hunted down like a wolf. He was wrong to some degree, but that wrong has been aggravated and dwelt upon until the man has been worried into defiance. The fault has been exaggerated into a double wrong by ferocious attacks upon it. The manhood of the man has taken sides with his error because he has been so severely handled. The man has been compelled sinfully, I admit, to take up an extreme position and to go further into mischief because he could not brook being denounced instead of being reasoned with. And when a man has been blameworthy in his life, it will often happen that his fault has been blazed abroad, retailed from mouth to mouth and magnified until the poor erring one has felt degraded and having lost all self-respect has given way to far more dreadful sins. The object of some professors seem to be to amputate the limb rather than to heal it. Justice has reigned instead of mercy. Away with him! He is too foul to be washed, too diseased to be restored. This is not according to the mind of Christ, nor after the model of apostolic churches. In the days of James, if any erred from the truth and from holiness, there were brethren found who sought their recovery, and whose joy it was thus to save a soul from death and to hide a multitude of sins. There is something very significant in that expression, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth. It is akin to that other word, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In that other exhortation, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. He who has erred was one of yourselves, one who sat with you at the communion table, one with whom you took sweet counsel. He has been deceived, and by the subtlety of Satan he has become decoyed. But do not judge him harshly. Above all, do not leave him to perish unpitied. If he ever was a saved man, he is your brother still, and it should be your business to bring back the prodigal, and so to make glad your father's heart. Still, for all slips of his, he is one of God's children. Follow him up, and do not rest till you lead him home again. And if he be not a child of God, if his professed conversion was a mistake or a pretense, if he only made a profession but had not the possession of vital godliness, yet still follow him with sacred importunity of love, remembering how terrible will be his doom for daring to play the hypocrite and to profane holy things with his unhallowed hands. Weep over him the more if you feel compelled to suspect that he has been a willful deceiver, 
for there is sevenfold cause for weeping. If you cannot resist the feeling that he never was sincere, but crept into the church under cover of his false profession, I say sorrow over him the more, for his doom must be the more terrible, and therefore the greater should be your sorrow for him. Seek his conversion still. The text gives us clear indications as to the persons who are to aim at the conversion of erring brethren. It says, If any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, one what? One minister? No, any one among the brethren. If the minister shall be the means of the restoration of a backslider, he is a happy man, and a good deed has been done. But there is nothing said here concerning preachers or pastors. Not even a hint is given. It is left open to any one member of the church. And the plain inference, I think, is this, that every church member, seeing his brother error from the truth or error in practice, should set himself in the power of the Holy Spirit to this business of converting this special sinner from the error of his way. Look after strangers by all means, but neglect not your brethren. It is the business not of certain officers appointed by the vote of the church thereunto, but of every member of the body of Jesus Christ to seek the good of all the other members. Still, there are certain members upon whom in any one case this may be more imperative. For instance, in the case of a young believer, his father and his mother, if they be believers, are called upon by a sevenfold obligation to seek the conversion of their backsliding child. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, 
they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.